Welcome to the Knock on Archery podcast, where we bring all archers and bow hunters together from all walks of life with the goal to educate, empower, and inspire you to be better both in the field and on the range. My man, Bill, what's up, dude? Hey, John. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. I think, uh, well, I'm not going to make the the world tour of talking arrows if I don't have a few more people on, yourself included. So it was uh, pretty cool to get a call from you, and I'm glad we could do a podcast. So this is awesome. Bill, I'm going to let you say your own last name. <laughs> I've always <laughs> just Hyden. called you Iron Will Bill. So Yeah, it's easier to say that. Uh, Vander Hyden. Okay. So. What's yeah. your, so where are you from? Where's your family originally from? Um, well, the name is Dutch, but uh, um, from Wisconsin is, is where I grew up. Um, where at? Uh, Montello. Oh, uh, you did? I didn't know that. Yeah, a little town, um, kind of by Wisconsin Dells area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I lived uh, everywhere from Jefferson to Sparta. It was my whole Wisconsin era. So you were dead in between my two places. Yeah. So you probably maybe pass through Portage to get there or something. Oh, <laughs> dude. Yeah, I snuck up to Portage several times to ski Cascade Mountain all through high school, man. Oh, yeah, that would be yeah, our I little, that'd be our ditching spot to get up there. And... Yeah, I did too, actually. That's funny. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think uh, probably the only time I ever uh, drank as a teenager in high school was up at the Cascade Motel. <laughs> we rented that thing down there at the bottom of the hill and it was uh it was pretty fun so yeah man i appreciate uh appreciate you coming on and i think it'd be cool to be able to talk you know talk shop talk arrows uh really wherever this conversation goes i want to just uh i guess be clear tell everybody this whole kind of series that i've been on truth about arrows uh, what I care about the most is just people being as accurate as possible, hopefully not going too far down these wormholes that I think most people aren't really going to see production on. They're going to some, well, I'm, I'm seeing it more and more now. I'm like, I'm like following all these people that are tagging me and, and, uh, I actually just, a dude just did a whole bunch of tuning. He's been tuning for like a week and he was like really happy with what he got. And I took his footage that he posted and I actually screen recorded it. And then I like imported it into my dart fish program and I was showing him his arrow instability. He was trying to go with a, with a hard left helical and you know, that arrow was kind of like knuckleballing and then finally getting rotation and he's trying to tune fixed blade broadheads and I'm, you know, I'm hoping people just realize, like, don't make it a good broadhead will help you not try to make this thing uh, rocket science, literally. Yeah. So what do you think, Bill? What's uh, where's your headspace at? You've been seeing some of the stuff that I've been putting out. So I thought it'd be cool to, you know, I want to hear all opinions and all sides. And and obviously right now you're. uh kind of dominating the fixed blade market. And um, just for the record, I found this. I believe this is one of your first. It, it is. Yeah, that was our original V-series. I might have gave you that one. I'm not sure. But um, 
Yeah, yep. uh, that was that was the first one. Was and the first then, one. Uh, I, I well, I'm sure you're like me. People say, "Yeah, I ordered something. Did you see it?" And I do not see orders. <laughs> um, right. But I actually ordered these, which is much more of a design that I would personally prefer, just based on historical tuning. But uh, yeah, I got three of these guys right here. Um, so these are single single bevel hundred grain. Yeah, right exactly, exactly. Yeah. So Huge. I'm gonna I'll shoot a few things with that uh, this year, and I haven't tuned it yet, but I, I don't think there's I don't see why that's gonna have a problem. That that thing looks pretty nice. Are the are your bleeders removable for people? Do they have that option? You can you can remove them. It drops about ten grains. Um, we also sell um 125 grain on up without without bleeders we call those are buff versions okay and yeah. have you have you tested sound on the non-bleeder we well we've tested sound of the bleeder version versus field points in the recent university testing and it was um there wasn't a statistically significant difference actually between our field points and broadheads um so you know, we haven't looked at if we pulled the bleeders out, would it be quieter? Because I don't think we'd pick up it. We'd be able to, you know, measure a difference there. Um, right. You know, differences down kind of in the noise, I guess, within the experiment. So what um, in that, are you using one of the sound chambers? We are, no, we don't have a sound chamber, um, you know, because we're trying to shoot, you know, 40 plus yards and record it. Um, okay. Doing it, we're doing it indoors. And the last time we did it was in a, in a field house where, um, you know, there was no, you know, we just try to kind of minimize the sound. So there's always a little background noise, which, uh, can limit, you know, to what degree we can tell the difference in, in sounds. But if, if, if we're not seeing a difference, um, a statistically significant difference, it's a pretty small difference there. Have you ever seen like one of these right here? Is that a uh, is that a little wind tunnel? No, that's that's actually a sound chamber. So that has uh that has microphones at four different places to be able to to test audible sound. Um, it's actually a chamber that I've used to test fletching sound, um, but also you can use it on broadheads too. I mean, it's it's kind of you know a totally you know sound contained tube, right? So it can measure the sound at the bow but then measure different sounds throughout the, you know, pretty much throughout flight and then impact too, which is pretty cool. So, how, so how big is that? It looked small uh, to me in the photo. Yeah. It's, it's only going to be about a 20 yard shot for measuring the sound, but you know, based on the containment of that thing, that's really all you need to be able to measure the audio, you know, from launch coming, literally coming out of a thing into a new chamber which would then just measure that sound and then, you know, measures the sound in two points and then you'll have sound on target. Gotcha. Well, we're going to be repeating a test and, and adding a few more things to look at uh, this year at the university. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll get some more information from you on that. So, so are you, are you pretty much funding a research project then for a certain class or what is the basis to it? Yeah, so I've been an adjunct instructor of mechanical engineering at University of Colorado 
um, mechanical engineering department. Uh, been one of the faculty directors for the senior design project class. So it's it's seniors in mechanical engineering. They spend a year long, um, uh, design, you know, kind of researching, designing, analyzing, prototyping, testing. Um, so. I've been involved with that for several years. This last year, um, I sponsored a project. So I'll be the, you know, the company is, is paying the cost of the project. Um, but it's kind of unique that since I'm on the faculty, I can also be the director of the project. And then, you know, there's, it, um, they don't have to hire another faculty director. So it reduces my cost. And I yeah. can also kind of direct, you know, um, give them more direction in, you know, how to do different things, how, how they should analyze data. Um, my input is more like, what are the best engineering methods for design, modeling, you know, computer analysis, prototyping, testing, um, design of experiments. So you can get, you can tell if there's really, so you can quantify differences between things or performance improvements, um, things like that. So last year, a lot of time was spent on first studying several different veins in the industry or, or, or kind of some of the top hunting veins or most popular hunting veins out there. Um, and you know, the, the CAD models of those. So we have CAD models of the arrow with all these different veins, um, you know, attached to different angles. We used the three degree helical for a lot of it, but we looked at you know some other angles there too. Um, and there's ironwood broadheads in the front. So what we wanted to do was some some testing. So, you know, there's there's a fair number of articles out there, like James Park's articles on you know, uh arrows with field points on it and you know the aerodynamics there, but it's pretty minimal information out there on, you know, aero flight with fixed plate broadhead on the front. Right. So um, that's really what, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of fixed plate broadheads, you know, I, and I can, we can both agree and go back and forth on, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages? And, and I totally agree. There's advantages and disadvantages of, of um, fixed blades over mechanical. So there's trade-offs there, but if you're going to shoot fixed blades, um, I wanted to get some, get some scientific data really on how can you make this fly well. Um, right. And in the, some people struggle there, you know, you need, in my experience, if you've got the right vein, enough vein on the back, it's some angle to get some rotation. If you're properly spined and a relatively well-tuned bow, they could fly well for you, you know, at distance. Um, it'll depend on the size of the blades and things like that too. But um, I wanted to kind of this independent study that, that, that showed that or could quantify quantify that. So anyways, uh, a computer model, which is, you know, CAD models and then fluid dynamic model. And in this model, we can look at, you know, airflow on an arrow, you know, flying straight or rotating. Um, and it can be tipped at an angle as if it's coming out, say tail left out of your bow, you know, five degrees, how much restoring torque do we get from each of these different vein configurations and how quickly does that pull it back on track? And to go down on range and you know the things we looked at were accuracy stability drag wind drift spin up and sound so we can model those things but then we also did this empirical testing out of a shooting machine a hooter shooter um, we used a high-speed video where we could look at you know the spin up and aero stabilizing coming out of a bow um, and also maximum spin rate later near the target. Uh, we used a um, lab radar to get, you know, velocity of the arrow as it left the bow and then downrange. So we could then calculate a drag coefficient and compare that to the model. Um, 
and we used a, a sound recording system. So there we just had, uh, we had microphones downrange that we shot over. Uh, we collected the data ran through a MATLAB program so we could look at the frequency content of that data. And we tried to look at it for, you know, kind of peak human hearing, two, four kilohertz. And then what we be more um, a deer's hearing range or more effective um, to a deer, I think was, which I believe was four to eight kilohertz. So we could kind of say, is it, is this sound a little louder to a human or not and to a deer or not? Um, and we also looked at, you know, when, when did that sound happen? What was the sound of the bow? How loud was that? How long did that ringing keep going? And then what was the sound at, you know, 10 yards from the animal? And then that last zero to five yards from the animal. So um, can I play devil's advocate just because I'm curious? Um, so are these, is, is everything just um, mo is being modeled or is it actually being, um, I mean, are you, is it actually being modeled based off the input from the footage from the high speed or is the modeling just done from like more or less like a CAD type program? You know, for those who are listening, um, you know, I try to, I want to go technical because obviously there's going to be some people that are highly technical listening, um, which I think would be good. But there's also going to be some people that are going to say, well, what does this mean for us? So, um, yeah. you know, what, when you say that modeling, can you tell me exactly what that is or what you're using for that? Yeah, definitely. As we go through this whole thing or our conversation today, if you see anything like you think could be improved or is wrong, Hey, I'm just trying to learn, you know, I know, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a teacher, but I'm also a student in the game here. I want to, I want to get too. everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, um, feel free to point out, you know, any, and, and I want to touch on a few things where our opinions have varied a bit and get your thinking and my thinking. Cause yeah, I, um, I, I would love that. Be at I, this. Yeah. I think, as an industry, I honestly think that these types of conversations are overall more productive. Um, you know, I think throughout this series, I've said my piece to begin with. I brought on someone who I think can like get people's antennas up, which I think, um, which is cool. You've actually read some of James Park's material, which I think is, is a very uh, good testimony for me. I wanted James first. Um, and like, kind of like I told you yesterday, the thing is like, when you get like super ridiculously smart people, um, like, I don't know how many podcasts James does, but I don't think it's a ton. And, right. you know, I had to, I had to lead him through that podcast. You know, it's like, I didn't, we had a delay. So if I'm not seeing him respond on his own, I had to, you know, I had to, to keep talking and I knew the information that I wanted out there from his perspective. And I wanted to, to spur some thought, which I think our industry right now, I've got everybody's attention. Um, but I think these conversations are what the industry has to have. Like these are the types of things we need to start doing because all I want is for people to be better. That's, that's all I want. I want people to be better. I want them, I want them to have, I don't want them to know, like, to think they know so much that they go in and they argue with someone like a, a Wayne Endicott, you know, that's literally seen probably more than me, especially now, because that's one of the things I told Wayne, 
you know, it would be valuable for me to go to the bow rack or, you know, any of these shops and hang out for multiple days to just get current on what some of these techs are encountering because, you know, I, I've kind of found through my testing, what I think simplifies things. And, you know, my methodology on coaching, my methodology on shot execution, my reasoning for arrow choice, my reasoning for arrow configuration, and honestly, my opinion on release design, those are all just based off what got me to where I'm at the easiest without having to spend tons of time. And I really don't like the amount of people that go so much further than me on what they're doing. But then when I see just the results, it's, you know, I, I want to try to simplify that for people. And I want, I think it's great that you're doing a study. I think it's, you know, whoever else, um, you know, I've talked with Troy. Um, I'm going to talk with Troy um, just because, you know, I think some of the things he's done were important for him at the time, but I also think it's revealed other things to where his ears might be open to some some different things now. So I think all these conversations are productive because the worst thing for our industry is divide. Um, we can certainly have opinions on, you know, like I told you, there's times I, lo I love an expandable and I have things about expandables I really like, but I also... You know, I can I can tell you right now if I had to uh, make a quick follow up shot, which you know some of these some of these hunters that say, well, I'm only shooting 25 or 30 yards. Well, if you've hunted enough, you know, if you've hunted enough, you're gonna you're gonna hit an animal poorly. If you've hunted enough, hopefully you don't lose one. But honestly, if you hunt enough, that's gonna be reality too, and in that case, if I had to make a, a follow-up shot that was a very long distance, well, now I need more penetration. And guess what? That's why I've that's why I've bought these, you know, because there's going to be a time where if I have to send this thing, you know, full send, this is going to penetrate better. I know that, you know, I know that in the close quarter range, you know, where I'm not really too concerned about penetration. I have my preferences as well, but I think there's certain applications. I know for a fact my wife or my son would do great with that head, and that head's a way better option for them. You know, they're shooting an arrow that's way lighter. Uh, they're shooting half the poundage, and they've got five inches less draw than me. So, like, those are, those are awesome options. So I just want to make sure everyone listening knows I'm very interested in what Bill's going to say. Um Hopefully, you know, Bill just said he's interested too. So that's how I want us all to be. We should all have an open mind. We should listen to each other. So I'm going to ask Bill some questions and I'm not asking him because I'm trying to debunk anything. I'm asking him because I honestly don't know. And there's some things just based on my experience where I'd like to know. So that's why I asked you the question about that. The other thing, are these guys, um, are they mechanical engineers or are they, or are they, you know, that they specialize in aerodynamics. Yeah, they're mechanical engineers um, <clears throat> and they'll graduate kind of at the end of the end of the year. And they've all had aerodynamics um, to some amount. Um, you know, it's part of the curriculum, um, kind of like I did, you know, fluid dynamic modeling. Um, back when I had it, my professor was one of the in first inventors of the ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile at NASA. Oh, um, nice. 
Yeah. And so, you know, there's great stories with him. So I think it's required in all mechanical engineers. And then some people can have more of an emphasis in it. And, 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 you know, some of these guys might depending on their electives, but usually the guys that are, um, we had 30 teams wanting this project last year. Um, and usually the people that, that, um, work on it, you know, are, are want to be in the fluid dynamic modeling or have more, um, more of that emphasis, but, um, so when you're yeah. testing some of this stuff, I mean, how much of it is actually what you're capturing in air versus what you're predicting based on yeah, so, the modeling? Yeah, good question. So let me answer that. When I so when I'm saying analytical and modeling, um, I'm really well. We we do we do some capturing of data like the 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 drag the velocity data, and then we have a model that then calculates drag coefficient to right. compare forces so we'll, we will take some like empirical data have a little model there to compare drag force um so that can be another model but when i'm talking about these um analytical models it's really it's really all computer stuff it's it's we design it in cad in a 3d model the full arrow with the broadhead in the front knock and everything it looks just like an arrow you know rotate on the screen apply um apply velocity to it <clears throat> you know, airflow to it. So, you know, it's fluid dynamic modeling, but, you know, so I sometimes get this, why are you using fluid dynamic modeling? It's not water. Well, oh, air is a fluid too. So uh, it is fluid dynamic modeling we use for the airflow over it. Um, and and we can we can get sound, um, you know, drag force, all these things from the model. Um, but then we, now we're trying to test them empirically. We're trying to actually shoot that, shoot each of these configurations. So they fletched up, you know, we looked at, you know, blazers, tacks, uh, max stealth, max hunters, uh, hybrid hunters, um, silent night, SK2, um, super savers, um, might be forgetting one, but they actually, you know, use a bits and burger and fletched these all up at the same angle on arrows and then shot them and, and then took the, you know, looked at high-speed camera for spin up um, and used the lab radar to get velocity, you know, drop over distance and things like that. Right. So like, um, I assume you have uh, one sec here. So I assume you're probably like using one of these. Yeah. Okay. Yep. yep. So, the, so your, your drag coefficients are really just based off, you know, launch out and then that's obviously clocking it do you guys shoot 100 what were you shooting for distance yeah so the drag coefficients though we first model them in the computer and uh -huh. see what, what the model says they should be yeah and then, we, and then we um shoot to try and verify the model um and they're not always perfect you know i model, was gonna say <laughs> i was gonna right? like i was yeah. curious um and and so here's the thing i really want to be clear i am trying to learn from you bill so i'm going to play like if i worked through all my testing i've ever done i think mm -hmm. the reason why i've learned what i've learned is i'm devil's advocate a lot okay so um and let so me how, interrupt you there so i'm yeah. used to working with i'm used to working with engineers you know i designed products in companies for 25 years before i started the broadhead company and that's what that's what we do as engineers to each other. Okay. You know, we don't believe anything you say unless you got data to back it up, and we question things. So, hey, I'm totally used to that. I'm not I'm not at all offended by that. If somebody questions my experiment or my data, that's just how we do. That's just how we do things as engineers. You know, I'll I love it. Is, I'll say this design is better than this one. No way, like, 
where's the data? Yeah. I can't say, well, I have a gut feeling that it's better. You know, um, you're just going to get torn apart. And we're, you know, we're friends, but, you know, it's like, uh, you back that up, you know, to explain <laughs> how you did that. So I'm totally used to that. So, you know, fire away. Good. I love it. I love it. Because it, like I said, in the end, I hope all of us can learn from some conversation. So, um, a friend of mine who's been on the podcast several times, uh, Dr. Stephen Lee, uh, he's been on, uh, he's been a bow hunter longer than me. Great guy works in the industry, uh, currently serving as president of the council to advance hunting and shooting sports. His brother, uh, works for Boeing, worked for Boeing. He's worked for Boeing for a long time. And, you know, he is an aerodynamic guru. When Steve showed him some of this stuff and some of the stuff that I talked about with James Park. He actually took it to him too, because Steve's Steve's an EDU person. He's, he's a doctor himself. And more importantly, he's actually a botanist by, by trade. So he's used to scientific data and he's, he's, he's run that and been president of, of ISU and Auburn. So I value him questioning, you know, data too. And so he took that to his brother and he told me, interestingly enough, that his brother just said, listen, even though he works for Boeing, he's like, my opinion and what I can tell you about an arrow is so very, very different than what we're dealing with. So, you know, I think when people listen... I feel like that's a very, very valid thing that people should should factor in on some of this stuff and on some of the opinions that we're seeing. Um, and I'm saying this, Bill, because you do a really good job of going to events and you also shoot and you shoot well and you, you know, you've got good technique. And to me, those things are like important. Those are very important when I'm trying to decide whether I value that opinion or how far I'm going to value that opinion. So it's, it's awesome that you can shoot and it's awesome that you're doing that. And for me to hear this person that works for Boeing, who's literally, you know, an aerodynamic, whatever they are, um, he's just like, listen, the, the forces on that arrow and the flow on the, on that arrow, because the arrow isn't, you know, one, this wall is varying, you know, there's, there's a lot more flex happening here than what's happening, you know, on an airplane. There's, uh, obviously it's a much shorter span. Um, not to mention the way these things are launched, you know, when these guys are dealing with planes and rockets, they're not usually shot with a rubber band, you know, they're, they've got, they've got a thrust that isn't a propelled string that's putting a, a, pretty substantial dynamic force on the arrow so i think for any of you out there who you know are listening to someone because there are some people that have some i guess they've got some clout when it comes to like aerodynamics but i also start to question like well how much has been really really specific to an arrow and how much can you actually do yourself I think that's important for like you to ask people. I think it's important for me to ask people, especially when we're getting people's opinions on this, because 
you know, yesterday um, we talked and we were kind of figuring out what time we could have this podcast. And we both started kind of talking about the shooting machines. And now that you've been playing around with those things, it's like, I think, I think your opinion might be a little different on a shooting machine now than when you very first thought, you know, I'm just going to go out in the shooting machine. So tell me what your takeaway is on some of this stuff and what's, what is important for us to take away and the other part of like, do we really need that all the time? Yeah. So um, there's a few things there, but I want to touch on them. The, yeah, the, you know, an arrow and flight, um, you know, whether it has a broadhead on it or, or not, it's a comp, it's pretty complex. It's a pretty unique situation. There's not a lot of research and data out there anyway. And it's hard to just apply something that might be true on a bullet or a, a rocket um, or something, you know, rockets closer uh, when the thruster goes off, but um, it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of its own animal there. So it's, um, it's hard to just apply things out there or general rules or whatever. Um, and in the modeling that we're doing, you know, I'm always skeptical of models. Um, and are they, are they accurately modeling what's happening? And that's really the reason why um, I don't ever just model something. I'll do the empirical testing and see, does this testing agree with the model because that's kind of where the rubber hits the road and i think you think the same thing like mm -hmm. all right let me just shoot groups with these two different design points <laughs> yeah. at distance and see how they hit because that's the you know i do the same thing um you know the students are using a shooting machine because none of those guys are, are archers um and they're trying to take take human error out of it but yeah i found that shooting machine when i first got it set it up um I quickly realized, you know, I, <laughs> it's I a pain in the ass. <laughs> John Stallone, he'd been using them quite a bit. And then I added a laser for the site so I could at least point the bow at the exact point each time with laser. Even so, um, yeah, without a lot of work, um, you know, I've quickly found out that I was better shooting offhand at distance. And just if I knew, if I knew my pin wasn't where I wanted it to be when the shot broke, I just throw that one out. Right. Um, and I think you probably do something similar where you just feel, and, and you're a better shot than me, where you feel like, you know, offhand, you can really, with enough shots, you can really see if this design point's better or than this other one. Um, so I well, Because you know what I think's critical, Bill, is so many people are trying to test this thing. Like, honestly, even the bear shaft testing, if you go too far with it, it's like, that's really not what you're shooting. I think the bear shaft thing really helps you understand getting your spine to match your bow. But, you know, once you start playing with different point weights or different, you know, different front inserts, a lot of that stuff can just rapidly, rapidly change. So I feel like the human error part of this equation is very, very important for it because even when I'm doing, um, a method that I call the hill method, which is, you know, I just shoot groups and I can throughout all my data, I can tell by horizontal variance, how that shaft is responding to the bow. I can just instantly see it shows up downrange. I don't have to waste time through a piece of paper. It's showing up. It's like telling me I'm weak. I'm stiff. It's, it's just showing me that, but I need to know when I make a marginal shot, 
like if I make an 80% shot or a 70% shot, which is highly likely in a hunting situation, I kind of want to know where that's going to go. Because honestly, at that point, your gear choice, your technique and your, and your setup, the match of your, your bow and your arrow, those things all start to factor in when we talk about, you know, that technique or the, you know, even having the type of release you use in the hand position that you shoot it in, because, you know, certain hand positions, you know, I talk about rocker position and I talk about angle of pursuit. Those are two things that totally immediately will affect the direction of the arrow. And then you've got the same thing in front hand, you know, pressure here, pressure here, even pressure here, obviously you got left and right. So I personally like having some human error because if I say that wasn't a great shot, but you know, it's probably one I would have to accept in a hunting scenario. And if you go down there and that's still in the kill zone, but it's not like way the heck off, like then I'm actually checking for a setup that offers me some forgivability. And I feel like if all you're ever going to do is shooting machine, shooting machine, or, you know, bear shaft, and that's it, well, you start to not really understand what happens when you're not 100%. And the truthfully is, like, as much as I train all year long trying to be 100%, I'm not. And so I kind of want to know when I make a shitty shot, how shitty is it going to be? Yeah. And I, and I shoot year round and I agree. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate test, right? I just got a, a dozen arrows in a couple of days ago. We, we do a custom um, arrow build now where we kind of machine and square very accurately both ends and, and build them up. And there's a re repeat, repeat build for me of the ones I've been using all summer, but I got a dozen in, I'm leaving for a caribou hunt tomorrow, actually. So um, I put a field point on, I shot them all at hundred yards and then I, uh, put broadhead on and I made a 10 inch square out at hundred yards and I shot them all. And that was my test on, is this arrow going in my quiver or not for car this caribou hunt? Right. And, it, am I going to hit, you know, a 10 inch, um, you know, I'm sure you guys can Kill zone. better than that, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy with that. And I put all 12 in that 10 inch square and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the ultimate test. How did it really shoot? You know, I did it with the S125 and single bevel 125 because I haven't decided which one I'm going to use yet. But um, that's kind of the ultimate test. You know, how does your, with the broadhead you want to use, with the arrow setup, the veins you want to use, your bow tune that you have, um, shoot groups at what you think with broad uh, with broadheads. You maybe, you know, just shoot one at a time or something so you don't wreck them. But yeah. um, how well can you really group? Because that's not covered under warranty anymore. Yeah. Um, so how well does it really group for you at that distance? So that's that's really where the rubber hits the road. That's what's important when it's all said and done. But the reason for modeling um, really is that it's hard to just see like this vein feature had better groups than this vein feature. I mean, we can see that, but then why you know why did it so if, if in the model we can look at well how does the airflow across it how does the what's the pressure difference on the edge or the two sides um you know what's the turbulence off the back it, it we can we can look at the differences that are happening in the model and say oh i think i understand like this airflow is more gradual and it it you know 
like for sound, um, there's some interesting things we're learning on sound, but we might see, oh yeah, I see how the airflow goes and why there's less turbulence. And okay, we can we can get sound cheaper or not cheaper, uh, get sound reduced yeah. if we add this feature. Um, so that's really the reason for the modeling and pushing it back to the computer model and the CAD models is that when we see that there is a difference, um, now we can understand why that is. And, and then in the model, you know, maybe we vary it to 10 different angles and then see what the model shows is best, but then empirically test it and see if there really was an improvement or not. So it's trying to push it back to onto the, you know, the physics and having a more fundamental understanding of why something's better or worse. See, I haven't seen um, any of that type of modeling recently. And obviously, like if it's anything to do with electronics, I know that it would change drastically. I mean, I've I've done some and like honestly some of jim's testing and stuff that i saw at the time was more in an actual wind you know in an actual wind chamber um but then there was also some stuff that um was done with like where there's actually like a robotic hand that was mounted to a shooter machine to where the hand the robotic hand could you could adjust the pressure of the hand and then see what the results were which honestly is ultimately where i tell why i tell people to grip the bow the way i grip the way i tell them to do it um is kind of just based on like the average of repeatability you know the more you just kind of try to do it a certain way you realize with you know with those types of things you can realize pretty quick some things aren't necessarily repeatable for everybody if it's not natural um and some of some of my just basic coaching fundamentals are things that the majority of people can do and repeat um if it's doesn't totally feel natural which for a lot of beginners archery doesn't feel natural at all um so were you able to to actually see like for your single bevels versus uh, the other or the right or the left, were you able to like see how much your broadhead actually would affect that rotation with the same type of vein configuration? Um, in, in flight, if a single bell will change the rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good question. That's on the list of things to, to look at. But no, I don't have that. I don't have that data yet. Dude. And I'm pretty curious about that because of some things I was seeing. I've got, I've got, I've like, if everyone just waits a year, <laughs> <laughs> right? I've got um, that. I've got that. So yeah, um, you, you'll love that. And I'm, I'm actually curious on that too, but yeah. Um, Cause some of the technology that, that I'm part of, I can't talk about right now. So um, that's one of the things that's on my list too. So I was curious if the model showed it because the one thing that's going to be really cool down the road is I'll be able to show exact versus a model. But the thing is, the exact feeds, this exact will feed into an AI tool that that AI tool will then probably rewrite the models. This would be my guess, right? Yeah, that'll be, that'll be great. You know, one thing we're doing to really... So in the in the computer model, we're tipping it at arrow at five degrees and looking at at the some of the forces and how much torque there is, you know. Um, 
stability is kind of a measure of where the center of pressure is behind the, the center of mass. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can we can calculate the torque from the different ones. Um, and then with the with the hooter shooter, we put it a little out of tune. So the arrows coming out, say tail, tail left. <clears throat> and we'll quantify it. Are you doing that by moving the rest, Bill? Or are you actually trying to torque the grip on the hooter shooter? We've done some of both. Um, Okay. Do you have any experience there or any recommendations on what you do there? (laughs) Of course I've done it, but um, I'm curious how you're doing. You know, I'm curious if you're just trying to get that, that tail whip. So when you did that, are you doing that through your program too or are you able to like overlay your high speed with that because do the new does the newer 3d modeling like is that able to actually process the paradox as well because obviously if you're you know if you're coming out left right but then this is also happening well now these blades are you know but and and there's a reason I'm asking you that question. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Um, so we, we've done, we've done both there. Okay. The, the model doesn't have the, you know, paradox going on, um, in it. And, and really with fixed blade has, I like, I like very little paradox, very little bending, you know? And, yeah. and uh, so I like to be optimally stiff to a little more stiff. And and I see the high speed video, I see maybe like a half inch of vertical flex. Yeah. Arrow's pretty much arrow's pretty much going straight. Yeah. That's what I want. You know, guys that put too much weight up front, extreme FOC guys, you know, you look at videos. <laughs> Easy dude. You might be hunting with that like up and a down day. Like crazy the whole <laughs> way there. Um so I don't want that. But knowing our model, we're just modeling it as a straight arrow, you know. Um okay. Models tend to, the more complicated you make a model, sometimes the more, um, you know, the less I believe it too. <laughs> oh, so, okay. um, I don't add complexity where I don't think it matters too much. You know, um, it, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I, if, you know, if it flexes and it's going straight pretty quickly, I'm just going to model it straight and see what that, sh- what, what the model shows there. Well, here's but, why I'm asking you that, Bill. The reason I'm asking yeah. you that is because there's going to be people that are that are chasing extreme foc and this and honestly this goes right back to what started me down this this rant if you want to call it that i personally feel like it's truth i feel like i'm just i feel like it gave me a reason to talk about things that i've been fascinated with for a long time and honestly things that i've dedicated a lot of my life to but what I can tell you is, let's say your model tells you with your broadhead and it's coming out, you know, that with your fletchings, you're able to get that thing stabilized and life's good again, right? See, I think part of what's happening is, you know, you've people essentially have this huge ass rock with this wet noodle behind it. And yeah, the, the rock is tracking. But that wet noodle, you know, is is kind of flopping around too. So, like, I think if someone's shooting too much point weight up front, which, let's face it, like, for me, I would struggle to find a stiff enough spine arrow to shoot some of the point weight that I've heard and, and physically seen people shooting because it's almost like, you know, 
it's like a guy wants, you know, I had, I had a gladiator, but I wanted to supercharge it. You know, and it's like, once I supercharged yeah. it, you know, I was trying to see what else I could, I program it to get a little more, you know, I just, I just, you know, redid the chip on my, on my diesel, same thing. Right. So some people chase that they're like, Oh, you've got 250 in the front. I'm going 300. And then, then what happens is then if you have not just this, because honestly, the video that I told you, I sent that guy earlier, you could clearly see when his release click, the arrow shaft just goes like that. And it hasn't even left his face yet. It's just, mm. it, it just goes boop, but that's about all it does. And then it straightens out. But when you have that kind of weight on the front and you create that bend up towards the front third of that arrow shaft, and it's coming out sideways. Well, now, Bill, what you're just trying to test for vein stability, it even becomes more critical. And not to mention, even the data is almost not totally relative because the projectile isn't even stable. Like what you're looking for, you're looking for an arrow that has literally stability as soon as that paradox soon as that goes like that that and it's there then this baby's rolling and yeah. that's going to give you awesome results rather you know honestly with the magnitude of your heads or a magnitude of of other heads so if someone is out of tune center shot is out or if knock position's out the worst combination after that would be a front weight that's so heavy that it's creating this really weird dynamic thing that's happening back here, you know, essentially right here in the arrow. And this thing right here is just kind of like catching the tail end of it. So, you know, I, I just, I love what you're doing. I just want to make sure people know that like, you know, Bill's, Bill's trying to find things to where if it's off, you're still getting corrected. But if you're not choosing an arrow and if you're going crazy on the front of it to where the spine is a wet noodle, then what you and I are looking for kind of goes out the window because we're now you're trying to correct two traumas, two different trauma zones within the same arrow. Yeah, I've been testing 150 to 175 up front um, and properly spined and yeah, if you put a bunch of mass at the front, if you think about that, that that be that launch becomes a much more kind of extreme event going on there because you're pushing, trying to push all that mass at the front from the back. Yeah. So you're going to get more flex. There's, you know, kind of more that can go wrong. I would say at the launch there, um, and and yeah, that excessive flexing for the guys that are doing it for more penetration, I can tell you flexing all the way to the target is not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's not going to be good in its own. Yeah, so and, show me your arrow, Bill. Show me. Is that what you're going to shoot? Uh, yeah, it is. So this is a hybrid hunter vein. It's uh worked with AAE to get their max hunter profile and a few different material stiffnesses and for the experiment. Um, and so um, the hybrid hunter kind of had the best overall performance when we factored in all of that accuracy, stability, wind drift, drag, um, spin up sound. And so this is a three degree um, helical, uh, three fledge, um, using a IP knock, 
Um, I like a knock with a little shorter, you know, throat to arrow distance. Um, right. I think that's a good knock there. So we've, we're using these and then that's our field point on the front right now. Um, and then uh, use a hit insert with an impact collar. So this is the titanium impact collar. It's 10 grains and a 15 grain titanium hit insert, 125 head. So 150 up front, 300 spine, 28 and a half inches long. So this is what I shot tack with all summer um, out of 70 pound bow, 30 inch draw. And it's what I uh, decided to go forward with in uh in hunting this year for my caribou i got a caribou hunt and then a couple of elk hunts following and which head will you put on the front of that then bill so i'll put on this is our our solid blade s s series this is the s125 um and i probably have a mixed quiver of s125s and single bevel 125s it's the same blade but just with a single bevel grind on the main blade and bleeder and i've actually been going forth back and forth between those two trying to decide if I like performance better of single blade, single bevel or double bevel, I make both now. So I don't care which one people like, um, what's your personal opinion. I want to hear it. Give me, give me pros and cons for both. Yeah. So the, <clears throat> the pros for double bevel and why I was a double bevel guy for a long time was, um, I think it, it has inherently kind of a stronger, sharper, more durable edge. Um, cause it's, you know, you're grinding both sides. It comes, it's, it's got a point that when you drive through something, there's kind of equal pressure on both sides and it's very strong. It can be very strong, very sharp, very durable for that reason. Versus the, the single bevel, when all the pressure's on one side, it's more likely to want to break out that edge or curl it over or something like that. Um, in my early, you know, early testing and years back, that's what I saw. And I went to double bevel for that reason. Um, the advantage of the single bevel is that with all that pressure on one side, it, it makes it rotate as it goes through an animal. So, um, I can send you some photos, but I've shot a number of deer and elk where the, and I like bleeders on everything, even our single bevels. Um, and when that single bevel with bleeders is rotating, it's kind of a four blade rotating. It actually leaves like a square hole, almost a perfectly square hole through the hide. Oh, cool. um, and so, yeah, that's the advantage there is it can open up the holes a little better on either side. Um, a straight two blade, you know, that hole can just close up too easily. I think through the hide, um, get covered up. That's why I like bleeders anyways. And then if it's rotating, it seems to open up a little bit more. You get a little more you know, trauma through the, um, through the animal as well. And what I found is with, with our steel, so we use an A2 tool steel. So it's, you know, used to cut metal and metal stamping dies. It can be made very hard and sharp to retain the edge, but also have great impact toughness. Um, with our steel and I increased the angle and I talked to Dr. Ashby, he liked that 25 degree angle, but I found with heavy bone, I could, I could bend that edge or chip that edge. But when I went to a 32 degree angle, then I could get through heavy bone without damage. Um, and then I've seen enough. I want, I'm not, I'm still not saying it's better than single belt or double bevel. Um, but those are the differences. I think, uh, it gives you that rotation, which a lot of people like that's become popular. Um, to, to me, they both split bone really well. That's one thing that single bubble people will say is that torque pops bone apart. Um, I agree that it does, but I also see that with the energy of my setup, I can shoot 
you know, our, our S series double bevel through, you know, cattle femurs, things like that, that I get, I can, I can pop that apart too, with a, with a double bevel, um, with enough energy. And I think that's the difference with, with Ashby's study, you know, he used the longbow, um, very low energy, very slow moving. And he, with a very long three to one type broadhead with a double bevel, he could see it wedge in and stop to where um, a single bevel was helping him pop that apart. I think with the energy I have or modern compounds have, either one can pop bone apart with, if the blades don't bend, the ferrule doesn't bend, you know, the arrow connection doesn't give on you. If um, they, if you have a strong durable blade that's not going to get damaged by the bone, it could pop it apart just fine as a double yeah. bevel as well. I just think there's certain animals where whether I'm, shooting one of these suckers which they're as well built as any i've ever seen um there's certain ones that there's certain animals you're just not getting through that thing whether you have one of these or not you know you might break it and you might get to that point but to like get a lot past that is it's hard because when animals are on their feet i just feel like energy is absorb differently you know versus when we're always putting things flat you know on something um i just i feel like from my experience it's been different um so i like shot these are these kind of go back uh earlier 2000s i'm sure you've seen these you've seen silver flames uh german kinetic yeah i shot those actually that was one of the first heads when i had a broadhead fail on an elk you know, shoulder blade in 2004, I started buying up broadheads, testing them. That's one of the first ones I found and it was using. And it's one of the ones I kind of looked at as I modeled what I wanted to do. And yeah, so as, uh, aluminum, as aluminum ferrule and a long pointed tip. And those are the two kind of failure modes. I could sometimes bend a ferrule, sometimes break the tip. Yep. When I got those, I was like, wow, this is like actually a, a well-machined um, product here, which this was overkill for its time, I think this these these were this was a, a a typical overbuilt german product that honestly um it was a it was a pretty good design it had some noise to it you know i think trying to create some like cosmetics in the flame and get some of the weight out of there also created yeah. a little bit of that but the thing is like back when a lot of these things were like being used they were really being used by people that needed extra penetration and they were really designing them for that. And usually those setups, in my opinion, weren't setups that were flying as fast as what stuff's flying now. So some of these things like vented or not, when you start talking about the performance that we have right now, and listen, I'm talking performance with, you know, a mid fours to a mid 500 grain arrow. I mean, these bows are spitting venom right now. You know, I wonder, like, what was Ashby's bow? What was the bow that he used for those tests? Do you remember? It, a lot of it was, um, well, he used a couple of different weight long bows, but um, they were, I'm sure the arrows were going very slow. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head what it was, but. And, I don't, you know, I don't bow, remember either. A long bow as well, you know, it's not. It's not cut to center. It's going to be, there's going to be major arrow flexing. So a lot of his conclusions were like um, extreme FOC, things like that. I think they had more to do with 
how straight that arrow was when it went into target because he's shooting at you know 15 20 yards um of you know animals that were killed and then just set up for him to shoot through i think comparing what he did with a longbow to what we do with a compound it, it, it really is it's but, apples to oranges that's what i don't like about the conversation you know it's it's comparing a flintlock to a 338 lapua and then trying to talk about what kind of bullet to put in a in a 338 it's like you know these are very very different things i'm sure there's obviously there's there's very important basic foundation principles like a cut on impact head, you know, and, and when I very first learned about this, the first person that actually talked to me about this was Joel Maxfield. And this would have been in, in mid to late nineties. Uh, I remember Joel just like taking a Zwicky and he, you know, he held it up like this. He had a Zwicky on the front of an arrow and he dropped it. This was back when we were all shooting, um, at the time we were shooting like T100, you know, we were shooting Barry, Barry Titanium 100s is what we were shooting. That was a really kind of cool fixed blade broadhead that kind of came out after the Thunderheads, you know. I was going to say, I was shooting Thunderheads back in those days, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and a Thunder, and a Thunderhead was one of the other ones. And Joel's just like, dude, he held it up this high and he dropped it down on a two by four. And I mean, and that Zwicky just, sticks in the arrows stuck up you know every other head we dropped was like bound boing boing and he just said if you're low poundage man you want to just be cutting right away it'll just you know and i was just like okay duh mm -hmm. but then it became apparent like you know at that time my arrow you know i was probably shooting a an acc 360 maybe back then with you know a standard 16 grain aluminum point and 100 grain head so you know maybe i had a 420 grain arrow and at that point had killed everything that i shot at with something like that and never even thought about it but then when i you know started talking about elk joel kind of showed me that and just said hey here's the difference you know if you're if you center an elk rib you know you got to be able to like start to pop through that thing and so just that analogy alone was pretty simple but the thing is like those bows that were shooting those wikis you know we talk about some of these recurves well they're half the kinetic energy that my wife's levitate at 40 pounds shoots right with it with an axis 500 so it's like we're worried about penetration as a community for some reason right now when the reality is shoot what's accurate take advantage of the efficiency and the design of these new bows find the middle ground on weight and choose the head that suits your specs and the purpose like that we have different arrows to choose from now we have different broadheads to choose from now people like those two decisions can can like settle so much of this worry for people i think yeah and you know what a lot of the testing I was doing through broadhead development was measuring the force for different heads to push down through mm -hmm. um, high muscle or high muscle and scapula. And that's where I saw there's a, it's a huge difference. You know, the, the current um, iron wheel broadheads, it takes like 10 to 12 pounds to go down through hide muscle. You can do that yourself. You can push it through that by hand. Um, the next animal you get, you know, take your broadhead and just 
push it into the hindquarter through the hide into the muscle. Is it taking 10 or 12 pounds? Well, a lot of the chisel point heads take like 50 to 80 pounds. Yeah, um, yeah. In a trade. And then if you get an expandable, it can be up, you know, 200 pounds or something like that. Yeah. So um, you can really see the difference in energy. So, yeah, I think that if, you, if you're shooting like an iron wheel head, it takes minimal force to penetrate. Um, man, just, you know, use an just arrow go. that's reasonably <laughs> side. 450 to 500 is going to be great. You're going to, yeah. you're going to zip through that elk, you know, I, uh, I shot through a, a, a biggest bull, biggest body bull a couple of years ago. It was 82 yards. It was in front of the crease. So right in that triangle there, right through the meaty part of both shoulders. It didn't, it only hit ribs. It didn't hit shoulder bones, but 82 yards zipped through. It was, I found that arrow 20 yards past it. I mean, why do you need more penetration than that? Um, he and my bulls last year, I shot two bulls last year and one, one was just quartering away. So I went through the shoulder blade on the exit and that was even with our wide head and it buried into a log eight inches on the other side of the, the elk. Um, and then on the, on the other one, um, my Montana bull, it spun, it was on high alert and it spun and turned into me on the shot. So I actually went through the shoulder bone on, on entrance. Yeah. Entrance. And that arrow still, um, I found about 20 yards past the bull in the dirt. So, um, yeah, you don't, did it go through when you say shoulder, are you saying scapular? Or are you saying humerus? Um, no, it was the, so the shoulder bone would be scapula then T and then it, it was kind of in the middle. Um, but yeah, it wasn't the thinnest part of the scapula, but it was down. It was you know, more at of, the bottom of the V where the, where the high ridge comes in. Yeah, kind of near the T. But I not think. on the knuckle. Not on the knuckle. Okay, no. okay, okay. That one. Yeah. Um, I did shoot a pig through the knuckle with our new wide single bevel um, back in April when I was testing them in, in Texas. And I can tell you that shot, it was it was 40 yards and it, his head is partially covered with leaves. And I must have aimed further forward than I thought. But when, that, when I made that shot, I heard... Uh, the loudest sound I'd ever heard a crack on the hip and, and I could see my lighted knock and I thought, uh Oh, you know, I must've hit something bad there and, and actually hit the knuckle, which was on a boar is, um, yeah. probably two, two and a half inches of bone. It's like a hammer. Um, yeah. And it actually split it to where that I could take it apart and put it together like puzzle pieces. It split it in two. I did not get a, I, the broad head poked through the, so I got an exit hole, but the, the arrow stayed in it. But, um, you know, I'm not recommending anybody shoot a knuckle. I think, a, you know, elk knuckle, there's some other animals where, you know, shot placement is really the main, most important. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, uh, you know, a deer and elk, if you hit that scapula, and that's really what I was trying to go for here with this whole design is because I had that, you know, broadhead fail. And that was a three blade chisel point, fail to get through an, an elk scapula. And I just knew from, my background in engineering, material science, and in, in, in steel, studying steels, that for sure I could design a broadhead that could get through that scapula and get to the vitals and and kill that elk um, and not not wound it. So you know that was kind of the whole reason why I got into this and just continue to try and make them better for people to be successful when they don't quite hit hit perfectly. Well, I can tell you on elk, moose, and honestly, either a a big black bear and specifically a coastal bear or grizz, those knuckles, like I've seen them stop certain kinds of bullets. Like they are 
so freaking hard. So if you're if you're making a choice based on an arm bone on those three animals, don't even factor it in because just like avoid that at all costs. Like avoid that at all costs. Um, yeah. And my point was just mentioning those um, bones or just the pass throughs is that I was shooting around a 500 grain arrow. So yep. there's no, there's not some 650 grain threshold that you need to get through a bone. Um, you know, there's, I think you can see, um, you know, adding mass can give you some, some a benefit and retain momentum, but with modern compound bows, you know, having it shoot really well. So you hit where you're aiming, um, is, and then having, if you want to get more penetration, I think you can do that with a broadhead more so than just adding mass. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, I think that's important for people. And I'll tell you what I, what I love, um, you know, I don't have a broadhead sponsor. I just, honestly, I, I shoot, uh, there is a lot over there. Like I'm, I've been kind of like, what all am I going to whack stuff with this year just to see, but your broadhead choice for sure can make so many of these decisions for you. Like go with an arrow that's accurate. I'm just, you know, I've on the last few podcasts, I've told people, a lot of when I go back and I look at a lot of my misses, the misses that I see are really from three things. They're either from deflections where I'm, you know, I'm trying to get an arrow like with elk. Sometimes when you're in dark timber, you know, they come in and that stuff and you're like having to like be underneath the limbs of the pines. And you're like, you know, you're trying to pick these these little freaking lanes and half the time they come in, they're looking at you. So then when they kind of lose interest and they turn you've got that like window of time to be able to like thread a needle, but that's like, those are the things you have to do to either fill a tag or not fill a tag. So for me, the flatness of the arrow, like the less I'm worried about my pins being so wide, when I draw back, there's a bunch of branches hanging over all my top pins and I'm thinking, shit, how far is that branch? You know, if that branch is 20 yards and it's hanging right there, well, you're going to hit it, you know, your 20 yard pins on it. Cause you're, yeah. you're holding on the elk down here. So I really think arc plays a huge factor in my success. Um, I think noise does. I definitely want to talk about veins. Like I'm very, very interested in some of your vein studies. Um, but, but the other thing too is, you know, for me, my misses have come from misestimation with ranging, you know, you get up and you're shaking and you lays past that bull to the pine tree he's you know he just came around so he's two yards past that um or you know classic uh you know i'll be in alberta soon hunting canola you know you're out there crawling through the canola the only thing you know you're trying like normally i've got like normally i've got canola all like wrapped on my head or i'm like holding it and i'm trying to just like get my eyeballs up so i can try to range literally like the base of a forked, you know, what you can see, that's, that's what I'm trying to range. I really am. I'm trying to range that. Um, sometimes that muley will stand up and stretch and, you know, you're crouching down and, and you're trying to just get up and get that one confirmation before he beds back down. But like the mule deer I shot last year, when he stood up, he actually stood up several times. I got a range. And then I kind of, when he laid back down, I kind of thought I've got more time. 
So I snuck in closer, but once I got into like, which took about an hour and a half, but once I got to this new position at 30 yards, I realized I couldn't see him when he stood up that time. All I could see was like this much and he's standing up. So I ended up having to back back out to a longer shot and to where when he stood up, his vitals were exposed. But even though he stood up and I got a range the, the first time and he bedded back down, he must have just kind of repositioned a little bit and bedded down. And I was right at two yards off because when I went up, I saw the bed, which was his first bed, which is where I had been ranging him. But then I could see where he had actually walked through that canola. I thought he was just feeding in a little, honestly, I thought he was feeding within his bed. He actually came out of his bed, got about two and a half yards or so closer to me and bedded down again, which is where the arrow was on the second bed. And, you know, I hit him a little high, but I got top of the lungs, liver. And, you know, if you watch that hunt from last year uh, in Alberta, you know, he went like 60 yards and piled up. If I was shooting 20 feet per second slower, Bill, I would not have got that deer. Like, what I'm just telling you, you I wouldn't have. Like, sorry, what speed do you, uh, are you, do you like to shoot for your hunting setup? Well, what I had always told people was, as my career has gone on, I've continually increased the arrow weight of my arrow to where I was always in that mid-280s to upper 280s, right around 290 for speed. Because I feel like you can get away with more broadhead options. Um, and and honestly, for me, I've, I feel like I've heard that sound so much. I've seen arrows at that speed so much. Now, in saying that, with the levitates, I'm actually shooting right at like 301 with a 530 grain arrow, I think. Something like that. So, you know, there, all, there also comes a point like for me either I could back my poundage down or mm -hmm. technically at this point, I feel like I could go up in arrow shaft weight to slow my bow down some, which honestly I wouldn't mind, you know, staying in the mid two eighties, two ninety range. I like that range for steerability. And once you start going over, when you start hitting the 300 mark, like a whole nother set of problems could possibly start to show up. So, what I've had to do is kind of put the brakes. So that's why, like, uh, I had shot some 80-pound Hoyts previously. These levitates, the E2 cams are definitely the fastest that I've shot. Um, so for that one, my problem is either I shoot 301 with the arrow that I'm at, or if I go to the heavier arrow or try to get any more weight in that arrow, I have to go to that next spine size. And once I do that, it's kind of diminishing return because my weight goes up so much that I fall below the 280 mark. So then I have to lighten that thing up. So I've just kind of made the decision of I like where I'm at for the middle ground and the tune of um, with this cam and, and my I'm shooting a 30 and a half inch draw. I can get away with a 300 spine with 150 total in the front. And I'm like, good to go. I don't have to go to the 280 uh, with this cam. Now on some of my Hoyts, I definitely had to. That Those cams are a little bit more performance oriented. So they they kind of ate up the spine of an arrow a little bit more than what I'm currently shooting. But I was just at that position of, 
if I go to that 250 and then load it how I want, I've fallen beneath that speedometer that I want to be in. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where I, why I've ended up where I've ended up. What poundage do you shoot? I was going to ask you. Yeah, I've got bows at 70 pounds and 75 pounds. And at 70 pound, I can shoot the 300 spine. And really, when I first had the arrows, um, uh, machine fletch, there were 300 spine is all I had available. I'd been shooting 260 spine um, axis. So I, I, I shoot 250, 260 spine when I'm shooting 75 pound. And I shoot um, a 300 spine, or I can shoot a 300 spine if I'm shooting um, 70 pounds, um, 28 and a half inch arrow. What? So, uh, so what's your drawing? Are you 30 and a half? Did you say 30? Oh, you're thir you are 30. Okay. Well, that's, that's like a perfect number. Yeah. So, I mean, you're kind of at a weird place too, where it's like, have you measured the KE on both of those arrows, the 250 heavier with heavier weight versus the 300 going faster at the lower weight? Where like, is, is there even that much of a difference to where it's like, makes you decide which of the two you want to go with? I know, you know, 75 pound bow, <clears throat> I'm going to get, I'm going to get more energy for that same draw length. You know, it's just that force times distance. Yeah. Will equal that energy. So, I mean, I know that I'll get more there. Um, I know that I don't really need more. Um, yeah. Cause I'm, I'm zipping through things fine with a 70 pound bow. Um, I just shoot the 70, 75 pound pretty much as well as a 70. So that's, that's why I lean towards it. But really I, I set up to do some, the, um, you know, the university testing was all with 300 spine and, and, um, I've done enough offhand shooting to verify the results. So I just kind of stayed with it. So that's why yeah. I'm currently, my bow's cranked down to 70 and I'm shooting the, the 300 spine here. Which, um, which bow are you shooting? I can't remember. Um, the, the V3X is what I'm shooting hunting with right now. I've got a, a okay. few bows. I've got Hoyt bows as well. Like the RX, we use the RX five for a lot of this, um, on the hooter shooter that's what i have set up on the hooter shooter okay okay so um, I, mean, um, I agree with your speeds though i really like i'm the same way uh if i'm over i like 280 to 290 um i think for a lot of people that even 270 to 290 is great and if i'm over 290 i'm generally going to add a little bit of arrow weight to bring it down to that you know 285 or or so um because i just think yeah with that higher speed there's higher drag forces it's just it's just more difficult um to get to get everything to fly well see i choose to shoot 75 pounds just because i figure that five pounds of of pull weight is for me mentally i feel like if i'm going to shoot a mechanical having that extra weight is to me what then balances it off like if i was going to go fixed blade all the time to be honest with you if i was going to go fixed blade all the time i don't think i would even shoot 75 pounds especially now like you know my you know this shoulder is due to be rebuilt um it's you know i've been i've been killing myself shooting for everybody um but i feel like because i like the mechanicals and i like big cuts and i like trauma for you know whatever reason i just have um i shoot that extra weight because i know i'm going to need a little bit more to push it through you know but but i also feel like if i did decide to ever go straight fixed blades 
I would just shoot the lower poundage. Honestly, I would shoot the lower poundage to keep my speed down there, or maybe I would go with, with a heavier arrow, you know, maybe I, at that point, maybe I would go up to that 250 and try to slow it down to that, you know, 275, 280 radar. Cause then I feel like I could shoot several of your heads and I would be just fine. Yeah, definitely. And it, yeah, shooting a, a, a head is going to penetrate with a lot less force and zip and zip through, you know, you don't need to have as high bow poundage. Um, you know, I just, I was hanging out with uh, Derek Wolf in, uh, in Montana a um, few weeks back and he put, you know, he played for the the Broncos. He's, he's, uh, what is he? Maybe six, five, six, six, 33 inch draw, 80 pound pose. Yeah. So I was trying to build some arrows for him. He's taller than me. He's a little bit taller than me. <laughs> I kind of had to no, look up. And you're, and you're a big guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he looks like a, just a giant Viking walking. Yeah. Out. Anyway. Um, you know, he shot an elk last year with a, um, expandable. I won't mention which one it was, but, with his setup, he's got double the energy of most most hunters with compound bows. Um, and he said, at imp, and he only hit ribs, you know, it was behind the shoulder near the crease. And he had most of the arrows sticking out of this side of the elk when it ran off. And he was worried, oh man, um, I didn't make a good shot. Well, the elk died, you know, it, it, uh, I'm not, I don't know if it got to the second lung or not, but it, it did kill it. It's just, um, it just, you just realize that wow he's got that much energy but with the broadhead he chose which had, which had really pretty flat um angle um hit but the broadhead you choose matters a lot on on how much penetration you're going to get and guy with that much energy um with some you know mechanicals it isn't uh isn't getting all that far so it just kind of brings that out how important it is like thinking about your whole your whole um setup bow poundage but then also what's the head on the front you know i love how you over engineer you know it's kind of like when i did the levitate you know i just told them i'm gonna use the materials you guys have we'll come up we'll literally build the bow that i like and then once we figure out how much it costs us to make that's going to be its price and i'm like you know i've always wanted to make the most expensive bow if I didn't have limitations to like what materials I could or couldn't use because of what the cost was. So, you know, and that even went for like, you know, at the time, like the DFC carbon, you know, it was like, that was more, that was more labor intuitive than, you know, the mock series. So I feel like over-engineering is awesome. You know, I know that obviously over-engineering also has to fit people's budgets, you know, um, so there's, there's also a lot of other heads that are on the market that fit different price categories, but can still give someone the advantages of a fixed VIX blade penetration. Bill, let me ask you, um, I would say the thing that I have the least assurance, I guess, based on just history is going to be, well, I do have I do have a lot of data in this aspect from friends that I have, but the thing is like they're also very high pounded shooters, so it's a little bit skewed. So I want to ask for the archers out there that are 26 and a half to 28 and a half inch draw length, what do you tell them to build for uh 
Oh, the weight arrow and which head are you going to tell them to use? 26 to 28. Um, I mean, let's just say, do you want to break it into 26, 27, and 28? I mean, do you have you thought really. that much about the arrow weight? I generally those? recommend um, 450 to 550 grains for everybody. And if they're a little bit lower poundage, light, shorter draw, it's more towards that 450. Right. But, and I'll say that, you know, so increasing mass, um, increasing mass should should give you, in theory, more penetration um, as you increase in mass. Now it's not like a, a huge step change, but um, you know, as you you'll get a little more retained momentum, and then you know, faster objects. You know, so an animal should act like this viscoelastic, um, and so as you're trying to go through it faster, it takes more force. And, and for that reason, you should get a little more penetration if you have more mass um, going through there at a little bit lower speed. Um, but it's, and I, you know, I, I run the numbers for myself. It's like a 10% increase in penetration is what I estimate I would get with adding 100 grains, you know, say going from 450 to 550, um, maybe even less than that. So it's not a huge factor, but I'll tell people, you know, if they're worried about penetration, well, you can increase your mass, but you know, just within the trajectory you're happy with, go and go and shoot a little heavier arrow, see what your trajectory looks like. Um, you know, I went too heavy at one time, and my arrows were bombing at fifty. And I'm like, that's not going to work for out west big game hunting, not at all. Yeah. So, um, you know, and and I was just trying to help uh, somebody that was really low poundage, shorter draw. We we're trying to maybe get down to four hundred. So it's, but it's. I'm like, let's try this weight, see what the trajectory looks like, you know, see, see what you think. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm generally recommending 450 to 550. And if they're a little in, and I'll position that depending on if they're lower poundage or higher poundage, but that's kind of just kind of a general range that I'm often recommending. And for which, which head, um, you know, we make our buff series without bleeders that are kind of for, I really just see those as kind of like Cape Buffalo. We have guys shooting, Cape Buffalo elephants, um, giraffes, um, they both have like, I think three, four inch thick hide, um, hippos, things like that, where penetration is everything. You just want to maximize it out. And then it's the, the two blade solid head. Um, and we have some guys that are doing it with double bevel, some with single bevel. I don't know that I've can really say there's a difference there, but that's, if you just want max penetration, you take the bleeders out, you could apply that to women or children too. Um, I found that adding that bleeder doesn't change the force to penetrate much. So I generally just recommend them on everything in North America, whether it's deer, moose, elk, whatever. Um, but I'm generally just recommending like our standard S series if they're a child lower poundage shooter. Um, our wide head, surprisingly, doesn't have that much more force to penetrate. Like once you get that cut going to make it a little bigger, isn't yeah, yeah. actually measure much of a difference, but I just know that, you know, maybe there's just a heavier bone that's just on that edge of where you might miss it um, with a more compact. But, um, yeah, our, our wide ones penetrate well as well. And it's more, I shoot our wides on, on whitetails, bears, um, and left. setups if the, set, if the shots are going to be, you know, 15 under more or less. Um, Did you say five? I might reach out under? further than that. That's where I like the compact one. It's just a little more forgiving in flight at long range. Did you say 50 and under? One yeah, five that's zero. That's kind of where I draw the line on our wide heads versus our standard for me personally. Yeah, it seems like if you get this angle right, 
the amount of pressure it takes, you know, for that little bit, it's really this. And there's some expandables on the market to where when they want the extra cut, it's not because they're adding length to the blade. It's because they're flattening blades and like that (laughs) doesn't look very awesome to me. Yeah, I've tried. I've tried them. I've tried them, but it it you know a lot of these things. I'm like, okay, everything experience wise tells me this is what's going to happen. And a lot of times I try those, and unfortunately, some people watch a film and they'll be like, oh, here we go, you know, rage or whatever. And I'm like, well, it actually, you know, I'm thinking, no, it wasn't, or actually, this was a prototype three blade I was trying, or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, all our all our main blade angles are like 22 to 25 degrees per side. So it's a pretty shallow cutting in. And if you think about if you you know take a knife and cut meat or hide or whatever, and you're doing you want to do it kind of a shallow angle, right? And then it cuts pretty well. If you just like chop it flat, like just just swing your knife flat and try and chop it, it's gonna take a lot more to press it through. It's gonna take way more force. And yeah i think some of those that are going up 45 degrees or beyond it's it's getting more of a just trying to chop rather than slice yeah and it's driving it's driving rather than cutting upon entry um well so i've i personally you know and i told you this um the one of the things that i love about the head is how that thing's going to penetrate i love it i love that um and it's overbuilt i love that too um can i comment but, on the over the over engineering here for a minute so yeah i uh so I, like i said i've developed products for 25 years for other companies and and i always would design the best i don't you know my focus is performance you know i love bow hunting i love mechanical engineering and improving performance and so i would always come with like these are the things we can do to make this product way better you know, going forward. And I'd be the design engineering rep, but we'd have like the sales guys there, the financial guys, and there'd always be a battle. They're like, well, how much can we raise the price of the product? Well, I, you know, I don't know. Um, and then the sales guys would say, no, we won't be able to raise the price. <laughs> well, we're not going to, we're not going to add costs if we can't get more money. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would sometimes lose those battles. And I've always, you know, I always thought, you know, if I ever had my own company, all the decisions are going to be based on what's the best product performance and especially because i am really making these things for myself because i want to be a better bow hunter yeah Um, but all the decisions are based on what's the best possible performance or you know what i think it is or through my testing and yeah and that's what you're going to get and then uh the costs kind of fall where they where they are and yeah our costs to make a head are i've done some comparisons before and it's like 20 times the cost to make our head versus a lot of these out there it's oh yeah it's ridiculous and if um if there wasn't a development engineer also as the you know CEO, um, there'd be differences <laughs> in our products. You know, there'd be some cost reduction. But no, I just want to offer the best product possible. I know the price point's high, and it's not going to be worth it for everybody. Or pe- some people just aren't going to have the the money to do it. Um, I totally understand. I um, couldn't, dude. I can't, I can't afford your heads for the amount <laughs> of shit that I shoot with broadheads, bro. Yeah, I'm like. You know, I, those things are going to be very guarded in my quiver. Like they're they're going to come out if need, if totally needed. Well, they're totally they're very reusable. We had I think I think nine now is the record of 
of number of deer one one guy shot with the same head i think we've heard um but yeah you can use them over and over i shot six i shot six things with one of these like nice. you know i shot six six things in africa with one of those you know where i'm like i was in a hide so i was shooting up the arrow was always kind of just laying out there somewhere um but yeah so my the reason i shoot expandables a lot is I just have found smaller holes at times clog up. Um, and even though you've got a hole on both sides, you know, for me, a bigger hole because I can do it. I've just, I've just had really good luck. If I don't hit a solid bone, like an arm or a spine, um, especially if I'm back, which for me anyway, if I'm ever anywhere, I'm playing it safe. Like, you know, and, and even though I know I shouldn't do there, this, listen, there's times where I'm pulled back on something and, and I'm debating how tight I want to get to the shoulder. And then there's also a voice in my head. That's just like middle of the body. This thing's dead. <laughs> I mean, it, it, if you hit one anywhere behind that shoulder for me, I've just, and especially if I'm behind the diaphragm, it just seems like the bigger the cut, the better you are. At least, you know, that's, that's been my mentality. So, you know, I want to say it how it is, but I want your opinion on yeah. that too. Yeah. I mean, that's a valid point of view. If you're hitting back liver, um, guts, um, a bigger hole can help you out and get it to lay down sooner, um, get more you know, just get more trauma to get the animal to, to die quicker, hopefully not go as far, um, get more blood or, you know, material on the ground to see. So that's a valid, valid point for sure. Um, and really with a smaller head that, you know, it's, it's kind of, are you going to hit forward or back? And that's the, yeah, that's where iron wheels can help you guys if you hit forward. You know, what I found is that more forward I, I shoot um you know in the heart lung area the quicker they die if i hit yeah. like top of heart lung up in that golden triangle man that animal's dead in about four or five seconds you know yeah. it's, it's quick it's dying in sight that's to me that's ideal that's what yeah. i want to do but if you're playing with that close then that's when you can more likely hit scapula something like that and i think with a with an iron wheel, if you hit the scapula, it's for sure going going through it for, for most people set up, most yeah. North American animals. Um, if you hit back, well, the animal's dead. Um, it's going to die. You know, if you hit liver or guts, um, it's going to take a while. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, it's, it's a bad situation, right? But hopefully yeah. it's, it's zipping through with minimal force. You know, a lot of animals I shoot just go you know, 20, 40 yards and look around like, what was that little, what zipped through me just now? This force yeah. is so low to go through. It's very quick. So less shock to them. Hopefully they don't go that far. Um, and, and you can find them, but yeah, I would agree that a smaller hole and it's part of the reason I shoot, um, our white heads for white tails because yeah, man, even though the, the, you know, shots are closer and it's maybe iron wheels are maybe overkill, you could argue, but, um, they're more likely to move. Um, yeah. At whitetail is what I'm more likely to hit in the scapula or spine. I've, I've had deer, like I've had does at 40 yards spin and be looking the other direction. 
Oh yeah, um, for, for sure. Especially when I'm hunting them down in, in Texas or, or Alabama. Um, but uh, anyway, that's why I shoot the wide there. Cause if um, they're moving often and I'm more likely to get one lung liver or liver guts. And when I've had their shots with a wide, then a lot of times they've gone, you know, 80, hundred yards and they're, and they're dead on um, not a long time, but no, I, I totally understand the argument that a bigger hole can help, especially if you're back, um, hitting back a little bit. Well, like for me, when I've experienced four shots, I guess the, the mechanicals have definitely come through like for sure. Now, the other thing is you said something that kind of made me rethink my mental process when I'm shooting because I used to, I honestly, there was like a time frame where I loved shuttle T locks. Like there was, you know, there was, there was a window of time where, uh, I loved the shuttle T's. And honestly, if you look back at some of the earlier, uh, knock on, uh, videos, I shot shuttle T's and I would actually intentionally, I called it shoulder folders. I would literally try to pin. I didn't want to pass through. I wanted to pin both arms together. I would literally like go straight up and I could stuff one where it would be about even out both sides and just pin their arms together. And you know, they'd normally break the arrow running, but, but when you're forward like that, like, and that's one thing you learn by hunting Africa is you learn how far forward the the heart and lungs actually are you have to be in the golden triangle for whatever reason on african animals right. because if you get behind the shoulder it's they're just different they're like more forward packed for some reason so i think when i shot that head i honestly wasn't worried about it and i kind of just went straight up the arm and I could see that triangle and I would just try to be right on the inside of that triangle. But if I, you know, if I kind of was going low to the elbow on a whitetail that I could get through. Um, but I would just try to stuff the shoulders together. Now with the mechanical, you said something that made me kind of think mentally. I honestly feel like there's a voice in my head that just says you're better off a little bit back. And, and it produces like, you know, it does, like on an elk, the lungs actually do go quite a ways back and they do on a moose too. They're, they're further. It's almost like the kill zone on a McKenzie target on an elk is about actual. Those things do kind of go up and back more than what people think. But I feel like maybe where my mentality goes when I know that's the head I have on I'm not trying to go straight up the arm anymore. I'm, I'm telling myself behind the shoulder, behind the shoulder, behind the, behind the shoulder. And if they have any angle, honestly, I want to ram it in the opposite side of the shoulder. I'm not trying for an angle that's going to pass it through. I want to peg the opposite leg. My experience has been when you hit something like I've definitely zipped in and out of stuff with like, you know, with really sharp heads, zip in and out. And they kind of walk off like what happened. And if you hit them in the gut, they're kind of hunched up, but they'll just like go. They don't really know what happened. Yeah. And there's like something hanging out of them and that cuts big. Honestly, they like, and let's say it is straight gut. 
the amount of times where I've actually been able to physically see them just get to the point where they're like, something's wrong. I can see that. I can feel this. And it just seems like, you know, it's almost like it forces them to bed down sooner. So those are just experiences that I've had as a hunter. And I think there are experiences that a lot of people who don't have high numbers of kills can appreciate that. But I feel like that is a real thing. You know, like when you said it goes in and out of them, they don't know. I've certainly seen whitetails during the rut where I've shot a real sharp fixed blade like that, zipped in, zipped out. They just keep rutting and rutting and rutting till all of a sudden they're just like blood pressure is too low and they just tip over. They have no idea what happened. But I think when you really crack something that does like a lot of damage and especially if it's protruding, they just like only go a certain distance before they have to kind of say like, is this bad? Like, I feel like it's like Will Ferrell when he's got the dart in his neck, you know, <laughs> is he just like, is it bad? Is it bad? Is it bad? Like, and you're like, yeah, it's bad. It's bad. So that's my mentality with it. Yeah. And, and you know, every situation is varying a lot of stuff anecdotal. Um, but, um, uh, Cody Greenwood trad lab has tried to study that, um, I think at one time he said, if the arrow is in the animal, they go further. You know, they, they realize, oh, somebody's doing, somebody's shooting at me or whatever. And they're going further than if it zips through. Um, I think he also had something that showed, um, this is in his latest kills data. I believe it showed when they're hit with mechanicals, they go further than with um, like a, a fixed blade head too. I wasn't sure if it was just cut on contact, but you know, there's okay. more of a more of a smack when they hit. But yeah, it's going to depend on where they're hit too. I think. Yeah, and I do think that on, on gut shots, doing more trauma helps. You know, I shot um I shot one big pig. Um, it it moved at the shot and I hit it back, and it's straight mm -hmm. guts. And um, unfortunately, and I saw it go 100 yards and just stop right there. Like it it knew something was uh it wasn't, it was hurting, you know? So that's, that's the thing. Why you want to do more trauma. They'll go, they'll go shorter distance and die quicker, or you can see them, um, bed down, get a follow-up shot, um, take them out sooner. Yeah. So let's talk veins quick, Bill. What time do you, yeah. we, we've got a little bit here. I'm very curious on your veins. Um, so kind of walk me through that process, um, and kind yeah. of where you ended up, where you're at. I, I've, Actually, some of the arrows that are over here uh, were Max Hunters. I shot, I actually shot Max Hunters on some of the very first uh, Sonic prototypes. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm so, curious um, kind of how you got to that and, and honestly how some of these other ones that I prefer, um, not necessarily more, just I guess I, I'm, I'm trying to cover such a broad spectrum of, people's setups and the types of broadheads and everything people are tuning whereas i think with you you're trying to find like you you found a match for like the the tip on the you know the tip of the spear so to speak so yep yeah i'm trying to find out really what works the best with ironwall broadheads but <clears throat> i think it applies to fixed blades head in general that have blades about about this size um and so what, what I found is with this profile, this profile does better than a, um, a parabolic type profile for the restoring torque. So, you know, if your bow's out of tune, your arrow's coming off a little bit, you got a fixed blade head on it, how much restoring force is there? And it's, it's a significant 
difference there. It was about um, 20, 25% or so. Now this is in a model, right? This is in a fluid dynamic model. So putting, rather than having, um, so a parabolic um, would be like, like the Maxtell. Um, if I look at a parabolic that has the same, you know, surface area, there's just more of the vein that's, that's forward. Um, and, and I should say that when I just match a parabolic to the same, this is like 0.58 high and the parabolic is a, a 0.5 high. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what the max stealth is too. So what I see, and that's, so that's the reason where, um, I know the max delta is really popular. It's a pretty quiet head. I know it's, um, one you like, and a number of other guys do. And, um, and I've done a fair amount of testing with it. Um, and it's, and I want to, and I keep putting it in my testing, you know, for that reason. But so that's, that's kind of the reason for this over the, like the max stealth or longer parabolic is that this, um, you know, this surface area back here and this extra height adds a lot more restoring torque according to the model. Um, but the, the drag is, um, the drag is pretty similar. And so I should say that's the restoring torque in a three fletch version of each, you know, three fletch max hunter versus three fletch, say max, max stealth, um, or hybrid hunter and, um, hybrid two six. So that's really the reason I like this profile better. Um, when you go to the, and the reason I go with the three flex versus four, I'm actually going to do more studying on this because, um, you know, according to the model, adding, adding a fourth flex should give you a significant amount more restoring torque, you know, for stability and accuracy. But I know that the testing I've done with the out of tune bow, when I try to do like a four fletch 0.4 inch high vein had very poor results. Um, this was a bow that was out of tune about uh, eight inches bare shaft versus flush shaft at 40 yards. I could hit uh, with, with say a um, hybrid hunter or max hunter. Um, I could get them to hit. I could hit, get broadheads and field points to hit within an inch of each other at 40 with that much out of tune with that vein. But if I went to a, a four fletch parabolic type, it was only 0.4 inches high. I was seven or eight inches off field points to broadheads. So the the vein height matter seems to matter a lot with stability with fixed blade heads. Um, and so with I do think though with the your setup, which is a four fletched max stealth, it does a good job of of st stabilizing and making fixed blade heads shoot accurately. Um, what I saw though is that. I was getting, so adding that fourth vein, there, there's um, a bit more drag from that fourth one, a bit more weight. So um, is it needed? Does that, is, does that um, outweigh um, the negative? So anyway, that's, I'm a bit on the, on the fence yet on that, but I yeah. plan to do studying of three vein versus four vein in this next year's study. Yeah, I've, I've done quite a bit of it. And like I said, for me, I have to look at like, not just one product i'm trying lots of products so it's you know whether i you know whether i grab a head like this or whether i grab you know a head like your first one or your second one or you know whatever it is like i you know i want that stability and and another thing i like too one of the dangerous things right now on a lot of these bows is clearance um and some of the veins that are on the market that are 
pretty dang high. The max, the max hunter is kind of right there on the border. You can't really go much taller than that because like on some of the newer Matthews, you know, and the Hoyts, your, your inside cable clearance is pretty minimal. You have to, you definitely have to pay attention to knock position, you know, and like where that's going through, you know, if you have three now with, with four, you know, I tell people to shoot it like an X, you get the most clearance, you know, from your scope, from the lowest point of your scope. You also get, you know, the lowest clearance here. A lot of people, a lot of the rest have a holder that's here in the middle. So, you know, you start going to a three fletch and, you know, you're either worried about inside vein to cable, you're worried about bottom vein to the little holder part, you know, um, depending on the type of enclosure, even just going, you know, with a cock vein straight up you know some of these i've seen contact there too so for me i've i've i think i've offered people more clearance options and then more options for the types of broadheads they shoot and then to be honest with you like today i think i posted like six different slow motion videos um it's a bow that i built i built this bow two days ago i've never bear shaft tuned it i literally shot it through paper there's one hole back there i set it up shot one hole through that paper and then went out and got those marks and you know today i went out and shot three different arrow shafts uh at 60 yards and they're all touching you know so for me just when i look at like what happens for groups and i'm not 3d modeling but i'm also looking at like when we talked in the beginning if I make a marginal shot, whether I can scientifically explain it or not, which of these actually bail me out? And just when I look at how that thing stabilizes with four when it comes out and then when it decides to start going, I've just had really, really good tuning with mine. But I've shot some your way before. I just feel like... Um, when I got outside of the type of configurations that you're doing, things start to get a little bit more finicky and spine match starts to definitely get a little bit more finicky too. What did you find with some of the other brands? You don't have to say brands, but are there any that were there some that has a lot of hype to them, but just did not do what they said? Yeah, there were. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately yeah. I, can't, I don't want to give you those details i don't want to i feel like i know but I don't yeah any enemies there but um you're you're let me first say that your point about vein clearance is is pretty pretty legit that you got to make sure if you're going to go to a taller vein you got to really you sure have you to have know clearance issue and, and you know i had in in rest drop away rest can rebound um and <laughs> I didn't realize to what amount they rebounded until we start doing all this high speed video work. Oh Holy yeah, <laughs> man, that that uh, I was having an issue. And some of the stiffer veins in the testing, this is how I figured it out. Some of the stiffer veins at long range, you know, I'd be shooting great with the hybrid hunter, which is um, it's relatively flexible. And I got yeah. a really stiff vein, and also to have a flyer. And I realized what was happening is. I was getting an inconsistent rebound um, of the rest, and it was once in a while clipping a flange. Um, <clears throat> depending on what flange material you have, it may or may not even show up for you, but it's definitely something to look for and, and be careful about. Um, 
Yeah, because I, I, I posted a video about, you know, the amount of people that come up at TAC and they're like, will I clear? And they kind of put their arrow in backwards and then they just say, oh, just turn your knock, you know, put your knock straight down and then you'll clear your scope there. It's like, no, if if you have like a lot of these veins that are out there and you go cock vein down on a QAD or even like, or even, you know, ham ski where they have the little arrow holder one small move and you can see it, you know, and I'll look in their quiver and I'll be like, okay, see every arrow that has that mark, that's every arrow where your knock is indexed incorrectly for clearance. And here's the thing. If you torque your bow, even though you see clearance looking down the back of it, if you have any kind of torque, you can actually bring that system, you know, that arrow into that system. So, Part of the logic for me is I'm also trying to weigh the teeter-totter of steering, you know, plethora of different options, and what is going to let someone that doesn't know clearance put my arrow on and not all of a sudden have this, I'm getting a six-inch left tear. What's going on? Well, you know, you're shooting your veins up and down and it's a high profile and you're hitting on the inside of your cable. You know what I mean? It's like, so I try to minimize that possible human error too. Yeah, definitely. And and then your other question there, yeah, there were, were veins that, um, you know, some of the performance claims like, where's the data guys? Um, cause, <laughs> cause I'm not seeing it. It's I'm surprised. This just goes across the hunting industry in general, boring industry. Claims are made when a new product is announced, and and do they just let the marketing guys make stuff up? I mean, where's the engineering data to support <laughs> this stuff? It's ridiculous. It um, isn't. You know, yeah. the vein that claims it's quieter is a screamer of a vein. Um, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, it's. Uh, Did you do anything where you actually altered the shape of the vein to see if you could get the noise to go away? We're <clears throat> we're doing. Um, we did a little bit of prototyping of the different features, um, and to try and try and understand that better. And we're going to do a lot more of that this next year, play around with the different features and see if what was causing this, this noise. Um, one thing we did that I'll, I'll tell you about that was pretty interesting is, is with this, um, hybrid hunter profile, we did it in different stiffnesses and when we went, when we went really flexible, um, they just buzzed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just loud. Yeah, buzz. they wrink. They actually wrinkle, yeah, and they'll kind of curl over too. They'll kind of curve. You seen them do that? Yeah, and uh, we've got some high speed video. I'll put this out sometime. But those veins are, yeah, they're bending all over, but they're just vibrating like crazy. You can see it the whole way going down there. Um, so essentially, uh, it's a it's like a diaphragm call is what they turn into, and so. Yep. There's some veins on the market that have a pretty high, you know, short, high profile vein. They have a high ridge and they make a pretty distinct sound. I'm sure you know what one I'm talking about. But if you think about it, like what I found was this back part where that steep point comes down, this back part, you know, if you look at it from the back, it's, it's literally like a diaphragm call, like buzzing, you know, where, where the point comes down to the radius this radius is like buzzing and where that, that air is going over the top of that steep point. 
it really makes a sound. And I actually tried, um, so like I got hired by, by Norway to design that, um, the fusion vein. So I was kind of, we did, that was kind of a long process. And the reason the rear of that fusion vein is shaped the way it is, is because on the vein that I'm talking about, which I think, you know, I took like fingernail clippers and I would nip that off and the sound would go away, but just the performance, I'm talking like a mill and a half pinching off mm -hmm. with a pair of nails clippers and just the performance, you know, cause they are good about correcting. Like you said, you know, if there's torque coming out of the bow, because it's this big rudder, you know, the rudder is going to grab and go, which I think is, you know, if you're measuring torque out of the bow, then short, you know, something taller is going to help you. It's just a matter of, are you going to actually have clearance, you know, if that's happening too, mm -hmm. but it's crazy what like a millimeter of a profile will actually do for what it does downrange or what it does for sound. Yeah, it's it's surprising um, how small the, the features can be. Um, and and one thing that I think there's a belief in the industry that stiffer is quieter. Just got to need a really stiff vein. Well, what was interesting is that we actually saw kind of a medium stiffness was a little bit quieter than a max stiffness. And um, I think once and, and it probably depends on like this is a three degree helical, you know, that that helical angle adds some stiffness too, versus like a straight fletch. Um, if you think about like, you know, sheet metal that might be might be straight will flex easier, but if it's bent in a cylinder, it'll support some weight, right? Yeah. So the geometry adds kind of adds some stiffness as well. But what I think is once you get beyond the point where you're not fluttering, um, just being stiff enough may actually be better than being too stiff because, uh, if it gives a little bit, maybe it reduces the pressure and the pressure waves coming off of it. I'm not quite sure. We're trying to understand why, but we actually saw that um, we could, if we went too high in stiffness, actually started getting a little bit louder yet. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they do. And And the other thing too is like, you know, the reason people shot feathers were because how forgiving they were when they're passing through, you know, going across the shelf on the old bows or, you know, honestly, like for target bows, we shot feathers a lot of times on our indoor setups because, you know, you're shooting a launcher blade too. And, you know, sometimes depending on your torque, you know, that feather just seemed to really, you know, if you had a little variation as it was coming across that lizard tongue, the feathers were definitely more forgiving. They just don't travel well. They don't, they're not fun to hunt with if you got to keep them dry. But when a vein becomes too stiff, like there's diminishing return on that too. You know, right. it certainly works if it doesn't contact anything, but, you know, and it's certainly if it's real stiff, Obviously, going through an animal, there's two different arguments on that. Do you want to clean the hole out or, you know, do you want that thing to be able to wrap up tight and be able to push all the way through to help help the penetration? So there's kind of, uh, you know, there's two different opinions on that, too. But honestly, I think, you know, in the end, it needs to like people need to just see what groups pick the head based on your weight 
and your draw length and honestly the type of arrow that you're choosing. I love it when you said, you know, shoot some different weight arrows and see what you like for like your sight pins. Like I think once you go to a tight, a tighter sight pin, you bring that sight in, those pin gaps start to tighten up and you start to realize, you know, one yard isn't life or death, but certainly on some of these setups, some of those setups I tested, you know, where I went out and shot, like I'm trying to shoot live. I'm trying to not cut anything. I'm showing people like, here's real, you know, this is how I shoot. This is how this bow performs. Um, people need to factor in all those things and actually just try them. And you'll find out that, listen, we're, we're, we're splitting hairs on something that with our compound bows, we're so far ahead of some of this stuff that people are worried about right now. And honestly, some of the people that are worried about it, they're getting scared about it. They're not even going out and shooting, you know, a dozen animals to where they've actually got the experience to say, you know what? I just didn't like when this happened. Um, I think some of it's like more of like a scare tactic and it's not totally necessary. Yeah, I would agree for sure. Well, Bill, I've got to get rocking. You've got to get rocking. This was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it too. Yeah. Thanks, John. We'll have to uh, keep in touch here as I do a study next year. I might call and pick your brain on a few things. I want to be able to loop you in on mine at some point. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that too. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate it. And good luck on your caribou hunt, man. Yeah. Thanks, John. Take care. All right. Yep. Be sure to check out knockonarchery.com for our full line of custom designed products, as well as free in-depth education and bow hunting entertainment to help you shoot 